cliffcentral.com. Let's go. It's already time for us to get into the burning platform, cliffcentral.com. On a Thursday morning, Pumi Mashiko and I are here to look after you. And with a couple of guests joining us who will help to explain what is going on, not only in the U.S. midterm elections. The results are coming in. Of course, some places is going to take a very long time. Other places, it won't take such a long time. But I have a basic breakdown for you, which I'll give to you now. We've got Brooks Spector joining us a bit later on, former U.S. diplomat in Africa and East Asia. He's written for the Daily Maverick from its inception. Post-retirement, he's also been a Bradlow Fellow of the SA Institute of International Affairs and a writing fellow of the University of Johannesburg's Institute for Advanced Studies. We'll also be joined by Mighty Jamie, who has been a regular on the Burning Platform, someone who is a researcher, analyst, and commentator. We like to hear what Jamie has to say about a whole bunch of things, and this morning will be no different. He will give us some comments on coalition governments. We need to talk about Ikuruleni in Johannesburg. On COP27 on South Africa being used as a pilot for green energy transition. And I have to say there's so much hypocrisy going on over there. Let me just show you this quickly. Uh, this is a, a a map of all the planes flying into Sharm El Sheikh and around Sharm El Sheikh. All of these planes making huge carbon emissions. Pumi, I mean, this is like, you know, all these people arriving there by private jet, by massive jumbo jet, by all kinds of other means. Of course, none of them using green energy themselves. It's a big hypocrisy going on there. And of course, it must be giving Greta Thunberg headaches like you can't believe. Here's also a list of the the cities, the most polluted capital cities in 2022. New Delhi in India, Dhaka in Bangladesh, Jamina in Chad, uh, Tajikistan's capital, Dushanbe, Muscat in Oman, uh, Kathmandu in Nepal, Manama in Bahrain, Iraq, Baghdad, um, and it goes down the list. All of these are the most polluted cities in the world. I, I don't see any of the countries that are leading COP27 in that list. So that you should know, tell you a lot too. We'll get into it, I'm sure. Hmm? And you know, the, the worst thing... You're a bit soft, me, Pums. I don't know what's going on there. You, your mic levels are dropping. has been busy working with the microphone. Is this better? Simpu is That's busy like... Yeah, much better. She, <laughs> she's, she's organizing. No, what she's organizing. But, um, you know... Anywhere you go to in South Africa, you, we know the biggest problems that we have when it comes to the environment, at least here in our country. And what it is, is it's access to water, right? Mm-hmm. We know about how much the Kalahari, Kalahari has mm-hmm. grown over the past couple of years, right? So we know that one of the biggest environmental threats we have in our country is desertification. And it's not necessarily kind of energy, green energy or pollution or any of that stuff. But nobody's talking about that. No. Nobody's looking at the, the answers that we need to really change the lives of South yeah. Africans. But hey, you know, our president is over there in Egypt with his begging bowl. Yeah, of course. Well, uh, what a wonderful name. Just transition. Just transition mm. to clean energy. That's all a big scam, if you ask me. It looks suspicious as hell. And Cyril's not new to being taken in by these guys. But anyway, we'll get to that with, with Jamie in a second. Let, let me just, hey, Jamie, nice of you to have us join, uh, have you join us this morning. Um, we've got lots to talk about and uh, thank you for your time as always. Is that your dog in the background? Jamie, let the dog in. No, it's not my dog. Good morning, everyone. It's just the dog outside. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let, let, let me start off because I got a, a message from somebody yesterday to please help understand how U.S. government works. Now, I could get Brooke Spector to do this for you, but I'll do a very brief overview because there are a lot of people who are confused by how this works. And in the U.S. elections, you may be confused as to what what a governor is, what a what a uh, what are the others, the the senator, what a representative is. So let me help you understand. So each each American state, America is a federation of states. It's the United States of America. So all of the states pretty much run themselves, and in in the vision that was outlined by the founding fathers, the states themselves had the ability to run ninety percent of what went on inside of them. 
Each state has its own executive function, which is the governor. The governor is kind of a, a state version of the president. He leads the state. He's got a lieutenant governor who's similar to the vice president, but at state level. Then each state has two senators, and they are um, both at federal and state level meant to be representing the state's interests. There was also, because when um, Jefferson introduced the idea of a Senate to the, the founding fathers and in their, the, the, the Constitution and the founding documents of the United States, the original idea of the senators was that America would be an empire and that the senators would also run the overseas dominions of that American empire. You know, this was 1789, so there was the world was really just empires and vassal states. That's all there was. And America didn't see itself as a vassal state. They'd just broken off from Britain, and they wanted to be a global power. And that obviously came to fruition many years later. But you have governors at the, at the state level, and then you have state legislatures, which is kind of like our provincial legislatures, like where the free state, you know, woman was in the sex tape with the Nigerian dude. With a little bit more power, a little bit more autonomy. A little bit more power. Yeah. Should be plenty. Correct. The federal system means that the state should be more important than the federal government. Then you've got the president and the two chambers, the two, the two, uh, what do you call them? Uh, levels of, of legislation. Congress, which is the Senate, which we've already discussed. Each state gets two senators and then the House of Representatives. And that's more like the ward system that we use in South Africa. So they demarcate certain wards and every couple of years they have a census and they redraw those boundaries. But essentially that's by population. So the House of Representatives is, you know, the, the population map of the country and where people vote. The Senate is two from each state, which you know, they're meant to represent that state's interests at a federal level. And then you've got your governors and your state legislatures and all of that happens. Plus in these elections, a lot of Americans have also voted for every other local office. So you've got people voting for propositions that are on the ballot. Like, you know, should we allow hairdressers to operate on a Monday? There's that, that's actually part of the U S ballot. And there might be questions like that in every individual state's ballot. There are also, Lieutenant governors, there are local judges because they elect judges in America and a lot of those things. And many people ask, well, why do they have midterm elections and the presidential elections? You know, every two years, they either do the midterms or the presidential. And that's because they've, they've got two separate timelines, effectively. Um, presidents and members of the House sit for four years, um, as do senators. Uh, but they've, they've, sort of got different timelines. So, for example, in this last election, we didn't have some of the states voting. Um, you, you know, you had states like uh, Wyoming and Minnesota and Mississippi that didn't vote in the, the Senate elections this time. But there are other states that did, like Colorado and Washington State and Oregon and places like that. So you'll see, for example, Maine, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, New Jersey, they didn't participate in this because they'll only do their elections for senator in the next two years. They'll do those when the president's elected. So they fall in line with that, that election. And they've basically got these two um, separate elections. So there's a little bit of overlap. They say it's a good system to make sure that there's enough change and that there's enough stability. And if anything, and we'll get into the election results in a moment or two, if anything, this election has proven again that the average American is just desperate for stability and something in the center. They don't want these extremists. They don't want the MAGA Republicans that Donald Trump represents and that Donald Trump's been calling for because he's had pretty poor results. Um, this was meant to be a red wave. Everyone was talking about that, and it hasn't been. It's very, been nothing but disappointing for the Republicans. And the Democrats have also had their asses handed to them because they were meant to be with the president – with a tie in the Senate that Kamala Harris could have broken, and with a majority in the House, they they technically held on to all levels of government, and they mm -hmm. didn't make it work for them. So this is interesting. We'll get into it with Brooke Spector a little later on. Jamie, you want to comment on it? Because you're obviously looking at the results this morning. What are you most interested in when it comes to the U.S. elections? Well, for me, um, the way I see it is that it's, a, it's not actually that the center has won. 
but that you've got the calcification of divisions in America. Because if you look at an election race, for example, like Pennsylvania, you know, even though uh, Federman won over Dr. Oz, his victory was a very narrow victory. I think he won by 90 or so thousand votes um, out of like close to 5 million. So when you look at those kind of things, you, you see actually a very divided America and a calcified America. If you look at a place like New York, for example, where Kathy Hochul won, she only won by uh, 300,000 votes. Which is, un- which is unbelievable. About 5 million. Which is unbelievable because New, yes. York, New York should be a safe blue area for you know, the governor's exactly. race and, exactly. the Senate, but, and the Senate and everything else. I mean, it's, it's bizarre that anyone could even give Kathy Hochul a, a run for her money. It shows you how unpopular they, I mean, that's that true. they actually are. That's true, but it also shows you how divided they are, right? In terms of like, it's not a center vote. Mm. It's like you got one side clearly on this side and another side clearly on this side. And in the last um, two years of the Biden presidency, those divisions have sharpened. You know, you've got the culture wars, the race wars, and the class wars all factoring into Americans picking tribes and being very reluctant to move out of those tribes. So I actually think that their politics is going to be very dysfunctional for the short to medium term because everyone is interpreting these results in a way that they want, in a way that's favorable to right. them. You know, Biden coming out, making it seem like he won, yeah. even though they lost 1 0. Yeah, you, you know, you, because you, a loss is a loss. Yeah, you make a but very still, good point. everyone is is. You make such a good point. I mean, Biden's already out there saying that this was a victory, even though they've <laughs> lost the house, um, and they may they may still lose the Senate as well. But either way, he's going to find himself in a lame duck presidency for the next two years. But it has saved his skin because if it had been worse, he would have had to. I mean, the whole Democratic Party would have tried to replace him somewhere in the next two years, right? Well, I think they may still very well replace him because he's polling at a very low level as an individual. And he was going around saying the election is not a referendum on him and people shouldn't vote for whether it's a referendum on him. They should vote for abortion. They should vote for democracy. You know, can you imagine somebody who's a sitting president saying, don't vote because of me, Mm -hmm. vote for other reasons. Don't make this election about me. That in and of itself is a clear concession that if you say, yes, it is about me and I'm doing a good job or whatever, then people are not going to vote. So the fact that you had to get Barack Obama, you had to get Oprah, Mm -hmm. if you look at the close seats where they, like, for instance, in Pennsylvania, they had to get everybody there (laughs) to try to actually get John Fetterman across the line. And that also shows, you know, the level of desperation. You shouldn't have to go and get every other superstar in your uh, team to get the guy who's supposed to be the main player to maintain his mandate. He's supposed to be able to maintain his mandate by himself. But the fact that he wasn't able to be the guy who's the star of the show also shows you how weak he is. Now, the real question is going to be, in my opinion, whether or not the Republicans go with Ron DeSantis or they stay with Trump. If they go with DeSantis, who had an overwhelming victory, he's uh, very popular in the base right now, uh, they probably will beat anybody who the Democrats put up because uh, the economy is not favorable to the Democrats right now. But if Trump uh, announces that he's going to run again and bullies everybody out um, in a primary, then it's Joe Biden versus Trump again. We're back right here where we are right now with this um, stalemate of progression for the people. That's a very good, uh, very good succinct analysis. I can't disagree with any of it. Um, We don't know whether you know, DeSantis and Trump will go up against each other, but we do know we do know that Trump has a habit of ruining this. I spoke with uh, David Smith of The Guardian yesterday, and we were both agreed that it was so unnecessary for Trump to have a swipe at DeSantis in his speech the other day. It's like he doesn't mm-hmm. understand. He just doesn't understand party discipline. He doesn't understand that it's not always about him. For Trump, it is always about him. I think his only comment... It is about him. Always. His only comment last night uh, as the results were coming in was like to attack somebody who hadn't done very well, who he'd endorsed. He's like, oh, but you're a loser. I knew you would lose. It's always about him. It's not about (laughs) the issues. It's just so unbelievably short-sighted. And that's what we're dealing with. I also think Angus has brought up two things here where he's absolutely right. He says U.S. senators serve for six years, which I omitted. I got that wrong. I thought it was four, but um, it is six 
And Angus also says that Trump's and Dorsey's did win 174 seats, only nine of his lost. That, again, must be accurate if you look at the numbers. But the fact is they wanted a clean sweep. And the Republicans have the opportunity here either to go in the direction of, of Trump. And, you know, you've got people like Carrie Lake who was – people were saying she was a, a dead cert to win in Arizona. And it's not so certain um, for that governor's race. It appears – Actually, that she may have a very, very tough fight in her hands. Um, you know, the House at the moment, let me just give you the numbers. The House is 207 to the Republicans, 184 to the Democrats. And the short story there is that the Democrats' razor-thin House majority is in huge danger, but the GOP isn't making the big gains that it expected. And that's as updated at 718 this morning. So... Well, I'm, I'm also got. I'm looking at an independent uh, article here that's saying because of <laughs> of the damp squib that the red wave has become, mm-hmm. you know, that they're talking to Mr. Trump to hold back and to what Jamie was saying to hold back on um, to reschedule on announcing his 2024 presidential campaign mm-hmm. because. Of the way that the performance has been, so it's fascinating to see what's and and I really can't wait to have the, a fuller conversation about what is happening over there with. Uh, <coughs> sorry, guys, my throat has got a, a thing with with um, with Brooke Spector a little bit later because I do think that the way that things are playing out now has actually got a, a bigger. A bigger impact, and it's probably more centered in something, some things that have happened much longer ago than what we think. It's not just a Biden and Trump uh, race that we're looking at. I think we're looking at, and we're talking about uh, American politics not becoming more centrist. You're talking about mm. them being polarized, Jamie. I think what we're looking at here is we're definitely looking at a blowback to what has become an incredibly polarized America. Can, can I just explain why I said center? Because obviously no one is voting for the center. They are yeah. voting for more extreme candidates on both sides. And obviously both in terms of policy are going to continue to chase the extreme wings. And, and the base in both sides is becoming more extreme. What I meant by that is that the average American is just looking for not crazy. You know, the average American is going <laughs> – they're going – because a lot of the people who the Republicans were hoping would vote for them in this election – either didn't go or voted for the Dems or voted as independents against the whole thing because they, they, they don't want crazy. They've seen too much I, crazy. You've got John Fetterman, who, who Mighty Jamie's brought up a couple of times. This guy's actually got brain damage. It's, he, he's had a stroke, and he can't speak, and he, re, he has trouble reading and writing. And this is a guy they've, not, they've, they've elected to the Senate. It's crazy. You know, Gareth, I think the whole world is just looking for a little bit of stability right now. There's a hang of a lot of crazy all over the world. And I think what people want, what voters want here in South Africa, in the UK, and definitely in America, is they just want a country that works. They want a country that works. They want health care that works for them. And they want to be able to afford the lives that they live. That's what we all want. You could even argue that that's why Ron DeSantis got the results he got in Florida, just because he's been running the place well for the last while. So let's let's just well, pause. That's, that, that, but that's not it, right? They voted for DeSantis simply because he is like also ultra MAGA without some of the drama of Trump. You know, the vote for DeSantis wasn't like a centrist vote. It was really like an anti-COVID vote. It was a very anti-woke culture vote. I mean, if you listen mm. to yeah, DeSantis, he is a speech. good administrator, but where he falls on the spectrum, he is five minutes to Trump, minus the 5% of Trump that really makes Trump crazy. Um, and that's what makes him palatable to a lot of people. So if you look at the candidates, there were some poor quality candidates who cost Trump because he chose, you know, people he thought like Dr. Oz, he just like, Oz is popular. Yeah, foot, he was an football players and celebrities. And, he chose, yeah. and he's yeah, already... Yeah, yeah. Been- He's already blaming Melania for that. So Melania mm. is the one that said he should. All right. Can, can I just can <laughs> I pause this? Because we are going to have Brooks join us, but only in about 15, 20 minutes. So if we just hold that for a minute and come back to South Africa, because there's plenty to discuss here. And I know, Jamie, you've got, a, you've got an agenda of points. I brought up COP27 
just a little while ago, and everybody's gathering in Sharm El Sheikh to talk, 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 more hot air, more carbon dioxide. They're flying there in all their planes. This is the biggest bullshit thing ever, this COP27. Why are we even doing this? Well, well, I mean, climate change is, 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 a, is a big issue, right? I mean, the environmental issues are quite significant. The issue that I take with the way the discourse is going is that, you know, we've got South Africa now being used as an experiment for a transition, just transition, so it's called. And Africa as a, as a continent only contributes about 4% of global emissions. South Africa is not in a position right now to move away from uh, coal um, and, and, you know, any other program products. We need to be using coal, we need to be using gas, we need to be using all of the things that are available to us. We haven't even industrialized. Uh, if you look at industrialization-based manufacturing, is only 10% of this particular economy's GDP, meaning that you still need to have a lot of growth in manufacturing and industrialization to really match the other G20 partners. So to come to a country which has not yet fully industrialized and to actually say, get off coal, and start going on this transition with uh, energy solutions that are not as sustainable, I think is, is particularly weird. And also just going to Africa to make this request is one that doesn't make sense. I think what the Zambian president um, signed up for makes more sense, you know, reforestation, that kind of uh, project makes sense. Getting more hydro uh, power um, support, that kind of support makes sense. But to come to African countries and say, get off coal at the same time while buying coal, from African countries, because this is what Germany is doing. This is what a lot of the European countries are doing to kind of deal with the energy crisis that they're facing because of the war. It's weird. You, you're saying to South Africa, get off coal, while simultaneously saying, give us all your coal. It's illogical. Wow. Although I think one of the things that we're not spending enough time talking about is, we, and I, I know I made a, a small jab at President um Cyril Ramaphosa and the fact that he's got a begging bowl out there is actually the amount of loans that the man mm. is taking out. You, you know, so the thing about the just transition, as they're calling it, is it's not escalating the timeline. In, you know, the decommissioning of coal-fired power stations that we have is going to remain. The timeline that we have is going to remain. But what he is out there doing is he's out there taking loans for putting more money into different cleaner energy sources. But nobody is having a conversation that says, okay, so all this money that you're taking in, where is it being put? Where where are we building these alternative fires? Uh, you know, where are we building all these alternative energy stations? No one has shown that. And he's just out there signing all these loans. And the reality of it is that come 2024, when we are going to have a new dispensation, because we can see this, right? The writing is on the wall for the ANC, is whoever the government of the day is that takes Mm. over in 2024 is going to have all these huge loans. And I will bet you anything that that money will not be there. That money will not be there when that new government takes place, takes over in 2024 as is what happened with the COVID-19 monies. But nobody's having that conversation. Nobody's having the conversation that says all these loans that he's taking up, what are the interest rates on these loans? Where are they going to? Mm -hmm. Where are they being invested? We haven't seen anything being said or done or signed well, we've got a, That's what we've got a, we've got a non-curious media. Uh, our media are just praise singers for Cyril largely, and we'll continue to report on him in as favorable a way as possible without asking any incisive questions. And look at how well it's worked. Like, where does this money go? But look how where well it's, does how this well money it's worked go? out. Because it has also the media. It's the media, yeah. I agree. You guys are also the media, and I think this is also a media platform and we should look into that, right? We should go and look for the documents, uh, make requests using all kinds of um, legislative instruments that do exist that allow you to, uh, what is it, PIA, allows you public Mm -hmm. access to information to request this stuff so that we can look at it. Because I think Pumi is asking very important questions around, one, what are the terms and conditions? What are the interest rates? Where is this money going to go? We also do know that, you know, uh, there are other partners who are very close um, to 
to the president. You know, African uh, Rainbow Energy and Power mm-hmm. is a company that is positioning itself to do a lot of this green energy stuff. And it's also owned by Patrice Mutsepe, who's very close to the president. Um, and questions around conflicts of interest also need to be asked and so that we can make sure that everything that is done is done in a manner that is uh, above reproach and isn't a, a, a cash transfer from the international institutions which give the money into these private companies which may be proximate to the president and then the public are left with the bill at a high interest rate because th- this is some of the stuff which has happened with COVID-19 was that loans were taken from the World Bank and the IMF and then we saw the, uh, the tender fraud lead to that money, the money that was loaned ending up in the hands of politicians, and, and, but the people who will have to pay that are the taxpayers. And what happens when we owe money with high interest rates? We get inflation, which we're desperately trying to avoid in South Africa because inflation will absolutely kill those people who still have a little bit of money and will make it even harder for those who don't to be able to borrow. It's a disaster. Yeah, it's, it's a big issue because it also cuts it cuts down how much you can spend. When mm-hmm. when your uh, debt servicing costs keep going up, we saw with Zambia, mm-hmm. they kept having less and less money that they could actually spend for social welfare programs and for education and healthcare. All of those things which a state uh, developmental state needs to be able to do. We've already got 18 million people who are actually right now depending on some kind of grant payment from the state. So if you already keep having debt increasing and you have people on the on the grant system also increasing and whilst you have, you know, the taxpayer base shrinking, that's a recipe for, uh, you know, state failure. Yeah, I wonder how much of this money too, we've got what, 10.7 billion from France and Germany. I wonder how much of that is actually going to go into building solar and wind energy and how much of it might just be going into other places that are far less well known to us. Yeah, it's a big mess. It's it's a, it's a big mess, and um, we really have to ask ourselves at this particular point: How do we have the right conversations about debt? How do we have the right conversations about this particular energy situation? Because there are many other alternatives that exist. I mean, just adding the word "just transition" to me is a very social justice <laughs> talk without um, real. Um, yes understanding of what really are the just needs for South Africa. Because like like you were saying, water title, is a big issue. It is it is a good title, you know, if, if no one's going to kick the tires. You know, we just say, oh, we're doing a just transition. Mm-hmm. So every activist is supposed to say, well, it's just, and it's a transition, you know, and I care about the environment. So let me move on and look away. And that to me already gave me like a bit of a, you know, red flag feeling because I was like, you know, this kind of labels to me when a thing is overly labeled, you know, then you know that something is happening. It's like with the, what do they call this? This the environmental measures that they're using now, where even Enron was getting positive ticks. All of the companies, yeah. the oil companies were getting, it just didn't make any sense. Like how is this oil company getting ESG? There you go. Yeah. That's the one. So I think we do have to be cautious and really do think around for right now. I wouldn't prioritize, um, transitioning South Africa um, on an energy basis, I would actually prioritize some of the other environmental issues. The water issue is a big issue. Some of the deforestation issues are a big issue and trying to get funding for uh, the extreme weather events and making sure that funding goes to the rebuilding because we're going to see more extreme weather events. I wouldn't actually just be focused right now as a developmental state on just saying, let's go to coal, let's go off coal and go to like green solutions, which aren't always reliable. You know, solar and wind, uh, do we even have that much wind, um, you know, to even say we're going on wind, we're going on solar well, you know, again, these are not 100 percent. I would I would say that if you just set up some of these wind farms inside the rooms where all these COP27 leaders are meeting, <laughs> to generate enough wind energy for planet Earth. But I'm being sarcastic, obviously. Jamie, I know you want to talk about coalition governments. And we've spoken about this with a few of our other guests recently, most especially last week with Mpopalatse from Johannesburg, the new mayor. Now, how do you think these are going to work? And what do you think the state of coalitions are? Pumi's already said. It's inevitable that we're going to have coalitions to deal with. Are there examples of where we've done this well in South Africa? Or are you very negative and pessimistic? Well, you know what? I think we're actually at the very beginning of this particular journey. And um, now I think a little bit 
more maturity is beginning to creep into the room. And if I look at the DA, for example, in the way that they were having conversations last month and the way that they're having conversations now, mm-hmm. I'm seeing a little bit more of decorum and maturity just creeping in because at the beginning, you know, they were saying DA-led coalition. Now they say multi-party coalition. There was a lot of shouting and screaming mm-hmm. um, on social media platforms from DA leaders, which was not helpful. But I think the egos are beginning to recede a little bit. A little bit more diplomacy is coming into the room. And now what I'm seeing is the ANC is the one that didn't do its game theory calculations right. Because at some point, they were negotiating with the EFF to give the EFF Ekorleni and then to take Johannesburg. But those negotiations were, you know, um, basically, uh, uh, what is it, sabotaged by the ANC. And then they ended up basically not getting Ekorleni uh, and also not getting um, Johannesburg because now they're not going to have the support that they need. So Mpopalaz is going to actually, you know, stay on as mayor by all prospects. So I think previously we 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 had this idea that we're a multi-party, um, you know, country, but we had dominant parties. We had the ANC dominating parliament, we had the ANC dominating most of the provinces. But now, you know, we're actually getting into this position now where the multi-party side of things has to kick in. The two worst case scenarios that we must always be aware of, number one, are Italy and number two are Israel. For the, you know, in the last five years, Israel has had like five, since 2019, last, um, what is that? Uh, three years, Israel has had uh, five elections. So now Netanyahu has a bit of a majority, but the fact that they had to have five elections since 2019 is evidence that coalitions can break down in ways that are very um, dysfunctional. And in Italy, I don't think any coalition government has finished a full term of office. So we want to watch out for those two worst-case scenarios and move towards some of the stuff that we're seeing in Europe with Netherlands, with Germany, where the coalitions may take a bit of time to set up, but they're very stable. Right now, I think that we are not anywhere close to where we need to be. There's still a lot of dysfunction, but I don't think that dysfunction is going to stay permanent if people become more mature about how they navigate things. But I must say that we're only at the very early stages and a lot of dysfunction is still in the room. There's a lot of dust in the air, so to speak. All right. Well, while we've got you on, um, what do you think of of this Human Rights Commission finding against Julius Malema? Because Pumi and I spoke about it briefly this morning and neither of us are particularly moved by it. It seems that Eyewitness News was making a big fuss of this yesterday. There was some noise about it on Twitter, but then anything can create noise on Twitter. Do you really think that this is important? Um, you know, is it, is, it, is it important that the Human Rights Commission says anything at this point to someone like Julius, who really is <laughs> he's incapable, just like Trump is incapable of interrupting the midterms. Julius seems incapable of saying things which aren't going to hand some of the EFF's money over to people like Afri Forum. Yeah, well, I think first and foremost, just to speak on those comments, there were definitely uh, uh, wrong comments to make. You can't be advocating for the killing of people. You can't be advocating for anything to that effect. You know, um, mm-hmm. words do have impact. And as far as possible, we don't want to be uh, affirming any hate speech or any form of speech that can really uh, pose a threat to people in the real world. Section 16 is very clear. I think the other legislation is very clear. Right. So I think that um, the Human Rights Commission was very correct to call out and say these parts of this particular speech were wrong. And I think we shouldn't diminish, you know, um, even the fact that they're doing it, you know, because as far as can we hold people accountable in the real life if they're very powerful? That's mm-hmm. a secondary conversation. I think we must agree that certain comments are wrong. You know, when I think about Kanye West, a lot of the things that he has been saying, slavery was a choice, his death con three um, comments on the Jewish community, some of the sexist comments that he's made, all of those things we need to be able to underline and say these particular comments are wrong, even though this particular person is popular, even though this particular person is powerful, these particular comments are not defensible and should be called out for what they are. You know, I do think that um, there's still a contestation around discourse in South Africa, you know, and that contestation will continue. But as far as possible, discourse practitioners should be able to say these are the red flags, these red cards, rather, these are the yellow cards, Mm -hmm. and this is where discourse happens. Because if we don't do that, 
you know, I think that the discourse degenerates and we end up having, you know, the kind of discourse which doesn't take us anywhere. So I, I think there should be more emphasis put on the ruling in terms of just in the general discussion, even though there may not be the kind of consequences people may hope to see because maybe they will pay the fine, maybe they will retract the statement, maybe right. they will appeal and lose at another court. But I think fundamentally we have to be honest with each other and say you can't be advocating for people to kill people. You can't be, even if it's in a political context, you know, those kind of words really are harmful and hateful and can uh, be and, and, damaging and it, to the discourse. Obviously, you know, the Human Rights Commission only has a certain amount of power to actually enforce some sort of um, consequence in this situation. And and so far, people haven't seen consequences because there's all these legal appeals. There's, you know, is this, you can say this, you can't say that. Uh, we've still got that AFRI forum case, which has to be settled at some point after their appeal. And it just seems to me that really right now, it seems like a free for all for a lot of people. You just mentioned that well, we, it is we, a bit we, of we, a, we technically and legally. It is a bit of a free for all. Yeah. Yeah, if there are no consequences, it doesn't take away why, from the moral. I agree, but if there are no consequences to any of this, then why wouldn't people just carry on doing what they're doing? Whether it's Julius Malema or whether it's someone uh, you know, who, who, who actively goes out and, and does much worse things and says much worse things. I mean, you can, there's not much worse I can think of than kill people, but um, it's, it's only a matter of time before someone says that, you know, person X is, uh, is making hate speech comments when they think that they're perfectly entitled to because they've seen no consequence for people like Julius Malema. Well, to be honest, I think there have been consequences for the EFF. They've paid Afro Forum before, right? And I do think that they will retract the stuff and maybe appeal. But I also think we must separate, like, uh, the the political comments made by Julius Milema and some of this uh, symbolic stuff like the songs. And, um, you know, I, th I don't think that there was an honest discussion by Afroforum around struggle songs. You know, um, the the insistence that they were literal, et cetera, et cetera, was very ahistoric and um, not contextual because we all know that South Africans have been singing these songs for over 50 years. And um, those songs are part of, you know, the revolutionary culture and tradition. But this is totally different to some of the stuff that Julius Malema was saying at, at that particular Western Cape event. So uh, I, I think those are different. But um, in most of those instances, it does look as if the EFF has been, you know, willing to comply, even if begrudging and complaining. It's not like they're like ignoring court judgments and not complying with them. They're just not always happy about the outcomes, which is slightly different. Right. Pumi, anything you want to you know, add? One of the things, you know, one of the things that we're very lucky with in this country so far is that we don't have people who act on these comments. We don't have people who act on this madness. I was just listening to a podcast which reminded me of um, Timothy McVeigh. Do you remember that name? Oklahoma City uh -huh. bombing? Oh, yeah. Of course. Yeah, Timothy McVeigh. Sure. <laughs> Oklahoma City bombing. Mm -hmm. In that, in America, they have when they have kind of utterances of this nature, whether it is on the far right or on the far left, what you then see is you see individuals who do actually take up arms, who yeah. do put, you, you know, we, they have domestic terrorism on the. So here, what we haven't had in this country, thank God, is we don't have people who listened to a Julius Malema at a rally, ranting and raving in that manner, and then goes out and acts on it so far, mm. right? But the problem with not holding them to account is the fact that you ramp it up enough. You ramp it up enough, you eventually do get to a place where people are inspired to act on these utterances. And for as long as we don't have enough of a hard consequence that puts a stop to this type of utterances, then we are still on a very slippery slope, I think. All right, let's park that because we have Brooke Spector on the line now. Brooke Spector is, of course, a former U.S. diplomat, and uh, he's been in Africa and East Asia. He's also written for the Daily Maverick from its inception. He's a member of the Bradlow Fellow of the SA Institute of International Affairs and a writing fellow of the University of Johannesburg's Institute for Advanced Studies. He joins us this morning to talk election results. Brooke Spector, how are you, and um, what, are your, what are your immediate takeaways? 
Oh, good morning, Gareth. Good morning, Leslie. Good morning. I hope you can hear me. And if you, if I look a little bleary and sort of unraveled, it's because I, since yesterday, I haven't had much sleep. I got up at two thirty in the morning yesterday to watch the election returns and answer everybody and his brother's questions about it. And now I'm up to answer yours. Thank you. A couple of quick observations. Well, no, you know, it's okay. We. It's a public service, Gareth. I have to, I have to do this for you. Um, even if I agree or disagree, I still have to do it. Uh, two observations. Uh, Republicans generally uh, produce some of the most extraordinarily inept candidate because they were people who swore loyalty to Donald Trump. And ultimately, voters make judgments about the quality of the candidates and the quality of their thinking and their ability to act in the interest of the larger public. And that's one observation. And the second, I guess, is that despite all the all the arm waving and and shouting about the red wave, the uh, Republican. Uh, the likelihood the Republicans were going to crush the Democrats in this election. And given the fact that in 36 of the last 39 midterm elections, so it goes way back, mm-hmm. uh, the, the incumbent president's party has lost mm-hmm. ground consistently. So that's, you know, that, that that's about as clear a consistent pattern as you can have in politics. In spite of that, the Democrats held on. And they may yet still contain the Republicans in controlling the Senate, and they'll be within within spitting distance of um, holding the House of Representatives. They'll lose that probably, but be very close. Uh, a lot of the polling got it wrong because the pollsters were so nervous that they overcompensated in the way they drew up their samples and their selection and and their filtering. Mm-hmm. Or because of the pollsters were in fact a little, a little suspect, a little dicey, uh, in almost deliberately trying to pre-cook their results, and so you had this this feeling that the Republicans were on the road, they're ready to go, they're gonna they're gonna crush all their all their opponents, and then surprise when the voters showed up, uh, they had a different idea. Yeah, I think everybody's uh, looking at this going, we've, we've been fed some pretty poor information and, and you've just explained why the pollsters might have got it wrong. But, um, th- this is, this is good news for Biden. He's, he's been out there already. He's said, uh, this is terrific. He considers it some kind of an endorsement of his presidency. Um, the, the, the Dems aren't in the, in the most favorable position possible. Uh, of course, it'll, res- it'll result in him being a bit of a lame duck president. No. And of course, uh, there are also still going to be in, in the Democratic Party lots of people talking about who else we could put up uh, for 2024 if, you know, Joe Biden, who's already quite advanced in age, isn't able to perform um, over the next two years. He's, he's, he's got a tough task ahead of him, hasn't he? Well, he does, but I think the tougher task uh, is, in fact, that Don- Trump, instead of being the, uh, you know, the, the Tyrannosaurus Rex of American politics, uh, he's got now mixing our metaphors unmercifully. He's he's proved to have feet of clay uh, and well baked clay. Uh, he uh, he endorsed all these folks, and they didn't win. And he ranted and he raved in various speeches, some of which began to border on incoherence, and. There are a fair number of people among Republicans, most notably uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida, the governor in Florida, who in a lot of ways was a, you know, was a mentee, if you if you can use that word, of them. but a smarter guy, uh, better educated, more thoughtful, less personable, perhaps. Uh, he crushed his opponent in Florida, and he has now firmly set himself on the course of contesting for the Republican nomination for uh, the presidency in 2024. There are lots of other Republicans who want that nomination too. 
And they're all going to have a chorus, a very steady chorus that says, thank you, Donald, you've set a path, you've cleared the forest, you've opened the way for the sunlight to stream in, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's time for you to let the new generation come along, new generation in their 50s and early 60s, mind you, but new generation. <laughs> and that's the trigger in the Democrats, precisely the thing that you're talking about. Uh, excuse me, Mr. President, sir, but have you thought about what you're going to do with the rest of your life? And the problem there is that the Democrats' bench is pretty thin, and mm. there are no really obvious people to step up and say, thank you very much, Joe, but, you know, it's time for the next generation among, among us to take charge. With the exception, and I just tossed this name out because you may never have heard of him, fellow by the name of Gavin Newsom. Does that ring a bell? Uh, he's the governor of California. Well done. You get, you get two points. Uh, California is the sixth largest nation economically in the world, remember, and it's got, you know, like 60 million people in it, and Gavin Newsom has proved to be a rather adept governor uh, and you're going to see a lot more of him in the next year or two, uh, because he certainly will want to position himself to say, uh, I could be the alternative. Uh, now, you may you may say, wait a minute, there's a vice president, Kamala Harris, and Gavin Newsom will say, she's a lovely woman, and I supported her when she ran for vice president, but um, I think it's my turn. And so mm -hmm. you're going to have a change in political faces in America over the next two years, people that foreigners are perhaps less familiar with than the names that they have become either comfortable or excruciatingly painfully aware of uh, in American politics. And we're going to see these, these folks fight it out. Brooks, speaking of names that we have known for a long time, what about uh, <laughs> Ms. Pelosi? When will the time come for her to be put out to pasture? Because, I mean, I think not only is Joe Biden quite old, she too, sitting there in that position, is quite old. Where is in the Democrats' part of life more interesting, more vigorous leadership going to come from? Do they even have it? Well, when I'm 80 in seven years, uh, I hope I have the energy and stamina that Nancy Pelosi has, first of all. Um, she always looks composed, and she always looks like she, you know, all the pieces are in order. And as far as I can tell, her mind is as sharp and as politically adept as it's been for forever. I mean, she learned politics as a child. Her father was mayor of the city of Baltimore when she was a kid. So she's had this political... Uh, style but she's already made choices about thinking that maybe just maybe she doesn't want to be speaker of the house or come to that uh, minority leader in the house uh, after this time around uh, she it is possible that she might not even uh, put her hand up to say all right come on vote for me one more time because mm -hmm. although she will have her seat with very little, very little effort, not even breaking a sweat, um, and she'll be back in Congress. There are a lot of younger members of the House of Representatives among Democrats, all of whom um, would like that job. It, it's, think of it this way. Everybody who gets elected to the Congress, whether it's a House of Representatives member or a senator, they all think they were born to lead. They all think that they could be they all think that they certainly could be the head of their party in mm. in the respective House Congress that they're in. Otherwise, they wouldn't have run for office in the first place. Mm. Um, I mean, humility, sorry, is is not one of the virtues of, of people in Congress, um, and that maybe that says it should be. But I suspect that if Nancy, if these Democrats do not have a majority House, which is likely now, perhaps, you know, five, six, seven uh, seats light of a majority, Pelosi will say, all right, I'll do one last stint, and after that, let's get ready for others. And there are a fair number of people, because they'll have 200 members plus in, in the House of Representatives, and there'll be a lot of people to pick from 
uh, newer members. Uh, you know, you, you look at the, the, the Democratic delegation that's going to be in Washington come January for the House of Representatives. They even have somebody who is just barely old enough legally to take the oath of office, a, a wow. young man who is 25 years old who won his district handily. Um, so there, there's talent that's going to push through in a political sense, whether it's, you know, whether it's in the sense of uh, being in charge of, of, of the ship of state. That's a different question. But certainly there are a lot of people who will want that job. And when they're in the opposition, that gives them a little more freedom of movement, too. Uh, Jamie, I'm sure you've got a couple of questions for Brooks. Can I go with one more quickly before I hand it over to you? Brooks, what about these really interesting close races? I mean, we're looking at Georgia, we're looking at Arizona. And, and I do want your comment on New York because New York is a blue state through and through. I mean, we, we haven't seen a, a, a red governor of New York or a, a red senator from New York or even a, a lot of house seats from New York going red for a long, long time. Um, it's a close-run thing there. must have been a bit of a fright to uh, many people in the Democratic Party that, you know, that, that the race came down to such a close thing between Kathy Hochul and Lee Zeldin. Any comments on that and then those close-run races? Yeah, well, uh, the, the, the race for the governorship in New York uh, is, 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 in a way, uh, an outlier. Remember, the, the current governor, Kathy Hochul, she only just took office when Andrew Cuomo had to vacate quickly for a whole range of reasons, not 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 least of which his um, affections to members of the opposite sex. Uh, and so she barely did it off. I, I'm being very gentle. It's a family show. <laughs> We're on radio. Um, you yeah. can be honest. <laughs> okay. Uh, pushed his affections upon members of his staff in ways which most people didn't like. Yeah. Uh, so she took over, and it's been a year or so, so she really didn't have a chance to establish herself as the boss in, in New York politics. Mm -hmm. And Lee Zeldin ran a really tough, strong campaign, and he's he's been a fixture in New York politics for a long time. So his name recognition was not light. It was it was well-known. Okay. Uh, she got some of the some of the hangover from people who were just a little tired of Andrew Cuomo as well, but it is true that there are a fair there are a number of, of uh, seats for the House of Representatives that went red went to Republicans uh, partly because the state had been redistricted that is the constituency the borders of the constituencies had been redrawn the population had not kept pace with other states that had grown. So the number of, of House seats actually is, is, I think, one less than it was previously. And as a result, there were, there were some fairly intense fights between sitting members of Congress who had to, had to figure out who was going to get which district. Mm -hmm. And there's also the, the, the long time sense that upstate and downstate different in, in yeah. New York. I mean, downstate as in New York City and parts of Long Island are democratic and upstate, the smaller towns and cities uh, throughout the, the rest of the state are, are Republican. Republican. Yeah. Um, and pressure was on. But to remind you, Gareth, you should remember these names. George Pataki, he was course, a Republican, Republican governor yeah. of New York. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And uh, Nelson Rockefeller was a Republican governor of New York for ages. Mm -hmm. And Jacob Javits the fixture in the Senate as Republican for forever. Javits looked more like a Democrat than he looked like a Republican. Right. Never mind. And, and Mayor Koch in New York was also Ed Koch, yeah. And Giuliani as well. I mean, Giuliani, who's now infamously tied himself to Giuliani. Donald Trump's legacy, you know, but he was a Republican. So, all right, Jamie, over to you. Over to you for the last few minutes with Brooks. Yeah, um, my question is really around these big uh, states, the swing states, you know, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona. When I look at even where the results have been called, you know, it's 52 percent, it's 51 percent, it's just um, 50 percent. In Georgia, you've both, both candidates under 50 percent, but very, very close to each other. That indicates to me that America is 
very divided actually and that it's not this particular election hasn't um, resolved the division more calcified the division i wonder what 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 you think about that mr spect yeah well partly i mean the country is divided but it's divided on more than just the division between democrat and republican there are there are geographical differences i mean it's a big country um and as a result, even within states, big states that you're talking about, there is a real difference between, say, the city of Atlanta, which is primar- which is a large, significantly black majority city, its surrounding suburbs, which are still substantially white, and the rest of the state, which is largely, but not completely, uh, small town, small city, Mm-hmm. white and um, increasingly Republican. And then in a state like, uh, say, Arizona, uh, Maricopa County, and which includes Phoenix. Phoenix is the fastest growing city in the United States. And it's about 70% of the population of that whole state. But the rest of the state is startlingly different in political coloration and you know values or whatever you want to call it than uh than phoenix itself is but then it's not simply divided black and white or um uh, liberal conservative or republican and democrat uh remember too that the fastest growing minority populations in the united states are hispanic americans some of who are themselves divided among several different communities um i mean people talk about florida as uh, and they sometimes forget that in a lot of ways, Florida itself contains five very different kinds of, of uh, historical, geographical, ethnic communities. Um, and so as a result, that those splits in the races in the big states, those 52, 48% kinds of things that you're talking about, they're reflective of the way candidates either do well in negotiating all those different divisions or fail to do so, or whether, you know, their party, their respective party manages to gin up enough support so they just barely squeak across the, the finish line. Um, George is a great case because I suspect that uh, Raphael Warnock uh, won every vote in Atlanta uh, except for diehard Republicans who would have voted for the devil. Um, Outside of Atlanta, the story would have been a little different. And as a result, you get what we have now, which is the split that's, you know, the piece of paper could fit between the two of them. And you had two or three percent to a libertarian candidate, which meant that they're going to be in a runoff. Guess what? Another election. Um, and just a, a side comment, you referred to the inability of the Israelis to manage to come up with a stable coalition. Actually, they've had those elections, and an Israeli friend of mine reminded me that the coalition that governs Israel has been remarkably stable. It's just the members of the coalition that shift a bit over time. Um, And as a result, you have somebody like Benjamin Netanyahu, who's been prime minister for a very long time, with some intervals in between, reflective of the fact that there is a broad center, center-right maybe now, uh, in, in, among Israeli polity, with shifting members on the outside fringes, this time around including those two far-right, uh, I'm not quite sure how to describe those two parties, that are now part of Netanyahu's coalition that are going to be pushing him toward their views rather than uh, from the left, uh, pushing him on their views. Netanyahu's a fairly secular figure in Israel. He doesn't really support uh, the religious rights views. He gives in to them on cabinet posts and some and some uh, regulations, rules, and policies because he has to, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, Gareth, before you go, before we, I know it's like one minute past, but if you can indulge me sure, one last question, and okay. I don't know if we can have a short answer to this, but the number sure. of people who have been elected, who had in one way or another, denied the election result of 2020. What do you make of that? One word answer. Troubling. 
<laughs> no, seriously, uh, it is public. No. I mean, it, it's a defiance of reality, and it's a defiance of of, of, of evidence. Uh, and I think, to a certain degree, it was an effort by many of those candidates to demonstrate their their allegiance, their fealty, their their loyalty to Donald Trump. I think you're going to find some of those people beginning to edge away from the, the extremes yeah. of those views as they see the new policies, the new people, and above all, the new leadership beginning to emerge. Uh, I think Trump keeps promising that he's going to have a big announcement. He's, uh, he was talking about, what, November 15th? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I read today that it may be postponed to the 24th of November, <laughs> and I suspect that eventually it's going to be postponed until January and, and February. Infinitely. And then we won't about it. Forever and ever. <laughs> Brooks, it's great to have you on. Jamie, it's great to have you on too. I just want to show everybody the contrast here yeah, again yeah. Of, the, of the kinds of things. We've got Jamie with his face in his suit and tie, and we've got the t- terrifically relaxed Brooks Spector in his uh, dressing gown with this beautiful view of the garden behind him. We, we like to bring you a contrast of views and opinions and points of, uh, of, of engagement here. Both of you, thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure to have you, uh, Brooks Spector and Mighty Jamie, on the show. And Pumi, we will see you next week for more of the burning platform thank you everybody have a happy day bye bye thank you bye cliffcentral.com